Matthew chapter 24. We're in a new series this morning. The End of the World According to Jesus. Which is not uh, so much a study of the end times as it is a study of the, uh, the 24th and the 25th chapters of Matthew. That's really what we're doing. It's an exposition of Matthew 24 and 25. Sometime back, uh, Jeff and I committed to spending time in Matthew this fall. And we, we felt right to go here. Uh, and then they moved the, made the movie Left Behind. So honestly, uh, I think this is better. <laughs> Matthew 24. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about prophecy. Um, maybe set our minds in the right direction. Uh, God does not waste prophecy on us. It's not given so that uh, we can satisfy our curiosity. It's not why prophecy is given to us. It's not given to us uh, to pique our interest in the Lord. Uh, prophecy is given uh, actually rarely in the scriptures. Uh, as far as predictive prophecy is given rarely, and it is being done for a distinct reason, usually to adjust how the children of God think, and to help them prepare for something that might otherwise be very difficult to understand. So when there's a prophetic word coming, it's oftentimes because we would miss it if, we, if God didn't speak. You know how often in the Bible we're told just to worry about today? Just today. Give us this day our daily bread. That should make the prophetic word stand out when the Lord takes some time to help you think about tomorrow. The tip-off is we would likely miss it or misunderstand it if he didn't speak to us about it. Here in the 24th chapter, uh, um, let me read you the first two verses because um, they're missing something. Let me show you. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he enters into, he takes them to the Mount of Olives, and he begins to describe the situation. I don't have, uh, it's the end of the world, so I don't have a funny intro. Um, but I do want to take us on a little tangent. I, wanna, I want to talk, it's going to be about 10 minutes. Um, I want to talk about something that happened 600 years before Christ that um, helps us appreciate sometimes how the prophetic word of God comes to readjust how we see his kingdom um, in an important way. So about 600 years before this, there was a man, he was a prophet of the Lord, his name was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel lived in Babylon. He had been taken away as a captive into Babylon with, with many other Jews. In fact, the prophetic word at the time, this is God giving them a prophetic word so that they would understand their judgment, the Lord said to them, if you forsake me and become disobedient to me, and if you fall out of love with me, I will raise up the Babylonians and they will come conquer you 
and they will haul you off into captivity. Okay, the purpose of that prophetic word was so that when Israel was falling, they wouldn't say God has failed. You see how the importance of prophecy? Because right there, the mindset would be, what, has God failed? Is God not real? And he puts that out in front of them. He, hundreds of years earlier, he said, I will raise up the Babylonians, and they will come and take you into captivity if you're disobedient and iniquitous. So that when it happened, they could find the word of God and go, dear Lord, we have sinned. And Ezekiel was one of those who was hauled off into captivity. And he and many others are weeping on the rivers of Babylon because they think that they have been, they are the vessels of wrath. They think that they are the ones who are incurring the wrath of God and those who have been left in Jerusalem with the temple of God, that their hope is in them. Their hope is in the temple. Their hope is in that the nation of Israel, that those who remained would repent and draw close to the Lord. That's how Ezekiel thought. That was what was in his mind. And so the Lord came to him and placed him in a vision. And Ezekiel, you, I don't think anyone would want to be Ezekiel. God speaks to some people in dreams. God seems to speak through Ezekiel in nightmares. Is uh, tough. Man, I would do just about anything before be Ezekiel. But the Lord pulls him into a vision one night. And in the vision, Ezekiel is transported back to Jerusalem. And the Lord says to him, I want you to see what's happening inside my temple. And he sneaks him into the temple. He finds a hole, the Lord locates a hole in the wall of the temple and pushes Ezekiel through. In other words, I want you to sneak in and see what they're doing because they think I don't see them. That's what's happening. And so Ezekiel climbs through the hole in the wall in the eighth chapter of Ezekiel and he sees all these abominations and detestable things happening and creatures and idols and horrible things going on inside the temple of God. And the Lord leads him from one room to the other. So he thinks, you think that's bad? This is the trajectory of the eighth chapter. You think that's bad? Look at this. And he looks and he goes, and there I saw another abomination. He goes, you think that's bad? Come look at this. All the way out until they finally get to the door of the temple where the priests are lined up, bowing to the rising sun, worshiping the sun. So Ezekiel's hope, as he's on the rivers of Babylon, is at least the temple is still intact. At least the temple is still intact. Jerusalem can rise again and they can repent. And the Lord says, you want to see what the temple looks like? And he takes them there and he pushes them through this idolatrous building. And and then in the ninth chapter, the Lord says, this is why I am going to utterly destroy this city. Even still then, Ezekiel pleads with the Lord. He says, you can't do this, Lord. All of our hope will be lost. All of our hope will be lost. And the Lord responds to him and says, you saw the iniquity. Do you not want justice? And then there's this, and then there's a vision. That wasn't enough. In the 10th chapter of Ezekiel, the Lord shows himself to Ezekiel Ezekiel got to see this chariot, this chariot of the Lord, and it's this fabulous, and this is one of the few times I wish I was blind so that I could 
not see everything else and imagine this correctly because it's so weird in the word. It's wheels and faces and eyes and things spinning and it's, it's celestial. It's celestial. It's, it's this chariot of the Lord. It's how in the visions of Ezekiel the Lord rides down to the earth and rides around on the earth is in this cosmic heavenly chariot. And Ezekiel has this vision, and in the inner chamber of the sanctuary, in the most holy place, the glory of the Lord is manifest, and there's light and brilliance and smoke and power. And the Lord mounts his chariot and rides out of the temple. He leaves the temple of God. It's not good news. And he, he says he sets up and he rises up and he goes all the way out to the east gate of the temple grounds, the, the extreme perimeter of the gate. And, and he speaks more there about, I'm leaving. And, this, and he talks about the, the judgment coming upon the city. And this is where Ezekiel pleads with the Lord and he says this. He says, ah, Lord, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? You see, Ezekiel still thinks that Israel is dependent on this temple and upon this city. This is why he gets the prophetic word. And the Lord says to him this, though I have scattered them far off, he says, though I have scattered my people all across the earth, I have become a sanctuary to them there. You got to hear Jesus in this, right? I've gone and I've tabernacled with them. I know my people across the earth and I will become flesh and make my tabernacle among them. So the Lord says, rest assured, I'm not enslaved to this temple and I see my people who are scattered across the earth. He says, I will go and I will sanctuary with them and I will gather them up and I will bring them back. I will draw my real people out of all of the countries and the nations and I will bring them back and I will give them one heart and a new spirit. And it says, I will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And I will be their God and they will be one people. That's the voice. In other words, Ezekiel had this whole vision to, so that Ezekiel could see the hope of God is not in a building or in, in a, necessarily even in a culture or a city. In fact, God's people are scattered across the earth. And he's going to go get them there. And at that point, the Lord rides up in his chariot and takes Ezekiel with him. He says, grabs him by the hair, whisks him up to a mountain, to the mountain just east of the city. It sits high over the city so that you could sit on this mountain and look down on the temple and down on the city in its glorious array. It would be the perch point to kind of assess this truth. And the Lord remains there with Ezekiel for a time before departing and reviving Ezekiel from his vision. And that mountain is the Mount of Olives. Now, when you come to Matthew, in Matthew 21, there's this great moment. Jesus rides into Jerusalem triumphant. We call it Palm Sunday. It was this great triumphal moment where they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid down palm branches in their cloaks and he rode in as royalty would ride in and there was this great hopeful declaration 
that Jesus would be the Messiah, the chosen anointed one who would save Israel from its tribulation. You see, they, they have an idea in their mind. But that week, the week that ensues, things don't turn out the way the people expected. And so what started off as this glorious entrance begins to turn into conflict and strife. And just like in Ezekiel, where the Lord goes to the temple to expose what's wrong, Jesus goes to the temple. And it's there in the 22nd chapter that he flips the tables. And just like in Ezekiel in the 9th and 10th chapter when he declares judgment upon the priests, Jesus in the 22nd and 23rd chapter declare woe against the priests. You see, it's almost as though if Jesus was not entombed in this lead carcass of humanity, we would have seen the brilliance riding on a chariot, traveling through the temple, declaring the iniquity of of the market and the perversion of religion and challenging the priests for their false religion, just just like the Lord did back in Ezekiel. And at the very end of the 23rd chapter, Jesus laments over the city of Jerusalem because it's doomed for destruction. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who have been sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And then he says this, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is turning and he's leaving the temple. This is to me a big moment in the word. He's striding out of the temple of God as though the temple is now irrelevant. The temple of God is leaving the temple of God. The tabernacle of God is leaving the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the glory of the Lord and Jesus Christ is departing the temple in judgment. Saying to them, you have missed it. Now I want you for a moment to imagine if you can kind of climb into that and imagine you're Jesus. You've you come to the house of prayer and there's money being exchanged. You turn everywhere and there's priests who are perverting the truth and weighing down the poor with new teachings and frustrating and and putting self-righteousness. Everything is twisted and messed up and you're in that and you declare it to be as wrong as it is and you, you utter words like your house. Notice he makes it their house, not God's house. Your house is now a place of desolation. And he turns and he goes to leave And as he's walking away, just imagine this is you. Your jaw is set. You're leaving. As you're walking away, you hear your disciples go, this place is awesome. I mean, this place is really impressive. That's when you're in need of a prophetic word. They do not understand what tomorrow holds. You you see the the disciples here? It says in verse 1 of 24, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
In Mark 13, which is a parallel account of this passage, they marvel in it. They go, look, look at these mighty stones. In fact, the temple that Herod built, okay, I don't know if it was ever the temple of God, but the temple that Herod built was so impressive. It was almost a wonder of the Greco-Roman world. It was covered in marble and inlaid in gold. It was mighty and beautiful. It rivaled anything in the Greco-Roman world. Josephus in his history tells of, of the size of the stones themselves. He, they're amazed at the size of the stones. Some reports may or they may be exaggerated, but they're saying some stones were almost 20 meters in length. Like it boggles the mind how to even think that they moved them up there. In, the, in Luke 21, which is another parallel account of this, they're marveling at the adornment of the stonework and of all of the, the gifts and offerings draped over them. In other words, Jesus is leaving this desolate place and the disciples are marveling at it. They will not be prepared for tomorrow if Jesus doesn't do something. And the church will not be prepared for tomorrow if this is our perspective. If our perspective is this overly optimistic that the church, particularly in America, that the church of America is going to mount up and and be this glorious, brilliant city that everyone is just going to think is great, that the the church that with Jesus Christ on this earth now, that the church is just going to take over. We're in need of a prophetic word. And that's what Jesus does. And you know where he takes them? Do you know where he takes them? To the Mount of Olives. I mean, he's following the chariot. He goes to the same mountain east of the city, sits the disciples down, and from there, looking at the temple, looking down on the city, speaks. Actually, they come to him with a question. Let me read the question, verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives... As as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now there's, there's a couple questions here. One is, when will these things be? Which I think it's probably best if, if we think of that as the first question that Jesus answers. And then their second question is, is what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay. They want to know, I mean, they're just like us. They want to know, when is this going to go down? When is Jesus coming? When, 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 when? We are so enamored with that question. We are caught up in that question as though it's an event that happens that we watch. Which is not how Jesus answers it. The end of things is not an event that we observe it is an experience that we participate in. It has everything to do with us and the substance of our character before the Lord. So they say, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And watch how he answers. Okay? His answer to when is, verse 4, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. When is it going to happen? See that no one leads you straight. He's trying to pull them off these little ideas 
to the big ideas. Just listen to how he says, see to them that no one leads you astray. Verse five, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. So in the disciples' mind, they want to know when. In Jesus' mind, he wants to preserve them, preserve their faith, so that it can endure. And so they're saying, when will it happen? And he's saying, here's how you should be, so that you don't, so that you're preserved for when it happens. Jesus is always worried about how we are. And, and isn't this the truth? Everywhere you look, there's, these, there's false prophets that have a new message. Since the beginning, even, even in the earliest times, you see Paul writing Timothy saying, watch against these false teachers. There's always someone where the smallest disruption or trauma in our experience, what you just wait, Ebola, someone is going to have some spiritual revelation about Ebola. Jesus is here to say, do not be alarmed. Do not jump to conclusions. Hold the course. Do not make it your hobby to point to every single event on the calendar as a trigger for the coming of Christ. He says, you're going to miss the the implication. He's going to come out. I mean, so like I've been reading the whole story here, but he's, been, he's going to come out eventually and say, you just you can't do that. But here it's the first subtle way of going, do not be enamored in these things. Do not be caught up in these things. See them and let them pass. Every time there's a war, there's a new book. Every time there's a conflict, there's a new prophet. In, in 1993, I went to uh, see Billy Graham here in the Vet Stadium in Philadelphia. I went with my girlfriend, my wife, and we took friends, and uh, it was great. In that building, the, the pure gospel was spoken by a good man, which is a great combination. Um, have you ever seen in, in the movies how like a shark swims? It has all those little fish that leech on it. So, okay. Outside the vet stadium, however, was this ocean of carpet-bagging false prophets who had pamphlets and videos and opportunities to take my credit card number. Everywhere you looked, hundreds of them swarmed around the true gospel on the inside of the building. They swarmed around saying, you know, mark my words. And they had their, their cheap posters and some even had good posters and their buses painted and all of their stuff, their t-shirts. And uh, there was all this hubbub surrounding the vet stadium about the second coming of Christ as though it's the only thing that matters. Jesus is saying, let it go. Do not be led astray. In fact, he ends with this, this idea. He says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Early labor. I've not been in labor. But I know someone who has. And I stayed in the Holiday Inn. 
my wife has actually never gone into natural labor. She, she's had to be induced all four times. <clears throat> um, we don't know why. But invariably, she would get the first fake ones. I think they're called Braxton Hicks. Is that right? Yeah. She'd get these earlier ones, and we were, yeah, we're having a baby. You know, we'd go in, and the doctor would be like, mm, eh. don't, you know, we're, we're thinking, the, the contractions are two hours apart. Is it time to push? Mm, out. You know, don't come out. In other words, in other words, the Lord is saying here, you're going to see things that look like the moment is here. Go away. It's not, you'll know. But because we're so, you know, a little bit of hardship comes, you're like, oh, this is, oh he must be coming. He's not. A little later, he's going to say, listen, you're not going to have to be told when he comes later on in the text. He's going to say, when he comes, it's not going to be an intellectual exercise. Your soul will shake. It will be answered from your feet to your head. You'll know. So stop sitting around with your, you know, second commonologer trying to measure the seismic activity. It's birth pains. Turn around and go home. He's reframing them. And he's reframing the church. In other words, you know how, how weak a church is that packs its bags and sits and waits? God has made us to live for him and for his kingdom. The last verse of this is, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. A church that's waiting for the, to get picked up is not doing that. Okay, and then it gets personal here in verse 9. So, First teaching is, do not be led astray. You are forbidden to make this your hobby. Then he says, listen to how personal it gets, then they will deliver you up. I don't think this is what the disciples were expecting. These sons of thunder who just a day or so earlier were arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom, who rode in, walked, strided proudly, chest high, nose slightly elevated behind the Messiah on his donkey. You know, as we kind of soak in the victory. And he says, you're going to be handed over. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because the lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is saying, don't be led astray, because what is coming will challenge your faith. And if your faith cannot endure, you will fall away. You will be the last person who wants the Lord to come. I mean... Just do, the, do the, the metaphorical math here. And many will fall away, it says in verse 10. 
And then verse 11, and false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And in 12, because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That means the fervor, the fire in your belly about Jesus will chill out. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. How many minis? Actually, it's four. There's one in verses four through eight. Many, 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 many will fall away, but the one who endures will be saved. Do you see Jesus trying to shape the church? Say, what, here's the question. What is your definition of a victorious kingdom of God? Is it earthly? Is it material? Is it something you can see with your eyes and marvel with? Look at these mighty stones. Look at this mighty job or this mighty marriage or this mighty health or this mighty family or whatever you've achieved. Is that the kingdom of God for you? Because it will fall away and you will fall away with it if that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not of this world. There's no handlebar in this life you can hold on to that is reliable for the victory of Jesus Christ. The victory of Jesus Christ is on the other side. To the wealthy, this is an alarming message. To the poor, this is a blessing. To all of us who have so much, this is frustrating because we'll lose stuff. To people who have nothing, they're thinking, wait, I have hope? Uh, Hope is attainable? I walked into the bookstore yesterday. I was coming home and I went in to get a cup of coffee and I walked by this brand new book and I'm I'm not like a Joel Osteen hater, but man, the book was I Can, I Will. So just so you know, if you ever want a good book on the faith, do not look for a title with the first person singular in it twice. Okay? He did and he will. Not I can, I will. If you hold on to that kind of hope, you will fall away. That's what Jesus is saying. Is do not be led astray. Do not settle for some cheap, paper-thin, cereal box prize Christianity. It will fall away the moment it's tested. Somehow, in our reality of possessions, it's so hard to hear this with ears that, that can hear it when we have stuff, when we have all these things that we think we can hold on to. Somehow, we need to, this is why we do this, this is why we continue to do this, we need to remind ourselves that our only hope Our only hope is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else in the whole world can save us. That's a comfort to the poor, and that is a pity to the rich. As I was reading 9 through 13 in study, I was so discouraged. I look at the church. It's failing. The church is failing. The church is failing. And then I felt the Lord just say, it's not failing. I'm just cutting away what isn't the church. Because look at the 14th verse. The church does not fail in the 14th verse. The false church is being cut away. The the people who recreationally engage with Jesus every now and then fall away. The people who like Jesus because he'll cure them of something or like Jesus as long as he's in their job or they're successful or, or their kids get to go to fancy Christian school, that person will fall away. But the real church that has nothing and is being persecuted and driven into the dust of the earth is reaching the world for Jesus. 
that means those who do not have anything but the gospel find themselves greatly satisfied in that enough to share it. Are we that? Are you that? I know if the many, the many, the many, the many will fall away and the few who endure to the end will be saved, I have got to wonder if some of the many are here. And maybe a few of the few. When the question of the end comes, Jesus' comment is, do not be led astray. Hold the course. Don't pack your bags. Work out your faith. He who endures in his faith endures to the end. In light of the Lord's Supper, and as we turn our attention to it, I can't, I just want to overlay the last week of Christ on this account. What will the sign of the end of Christ be? To these disciples who are so convinced of victory, so convinced of brilliance, so convinced of triumph, Jesus will be delivered up to tribulation. Jesus will be the subject of betrayal. Jesus, the hearts of people will grow cold on Jesus. False prophets will arise and lead people astray from Jesus. There's a great persecution coming, which you'll read next week. That's coming on Jesus. But he who endured to the end would be saved. Why is it that the church, so many in the church, want a pattern of life and a story to tell that's so different from the sacrificial life of Christ? Why is it that we're perfectly satisfied in him cultivating our salvation through tribulation, and yet all we want to reap is victory? Do you know in the word, when you find those who draw closer to the Lord, closer and closer to the Lord, they begin to say things like this, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Or Job, and though my flesh should be destroyed, yet with my eyes I shall see God. These eyes, he says. I know that my Redeemer lives, he says. That those whose faith has an enduring nature seem content that their life would fall in the very same pattern as our crucified and risen Savior. Is that the nature of your faith? Or is it firmly embedded in earthly victory? You should not be led astray. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. We give you great thanks for your gift of your body and the pattern you've demonstrated to us. The fact that you would tell us to reenact it and reenact it and remember and remember, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you that your son didn't, was not led astray. We thank you that your son did not fall away. We thank you that his love did not grow cold. We thank you that he was not caught up by these earthly visible things, that even though Satan himself tempted him with all of the earthly wealth and the visible material realm, Lord, we thank you that Jesus was undeterred, but he knew at all times he was sent by you for us. Lord, that love is mysterious to us and you showered it over us. And I pray this morning, Lord, you would, you would touch each person here with that love. 
that they would find comfort in the fact that you walked into tribulation because of a victory that was on the other side. Lord, make us make our hope secure in future victory. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.